welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. To another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. It's episode 127. Thank you very much for joining me. It's really lovely to have you along. My guest this week is Sam Delaney. He's a journalist and an author and a broadcaster. He writes for the likes of The Guardian and The Big Issue. He's had a show on Talk Sports and he's also the host of a few podcasts, I think, but the main ones being Top Flight Time Machine, which has been going for quite a while, and also The Reset, which is a mental health podcast. And that's kind of how I know about Sam. And he's also recently brought out a new book that's all about his mental health. It's called Sort Your Head Out. And it's about his life and his career and his mental health and sobriety and all that sort of stuff. And when Sam reached his 30s, his mental health struggles started to catch up with him. And his work and his lifestyle and his addictions, they all came to a head and he was forced to start dealing with things. And that's what we talk about in this episode. I chat to Sam about his career in the media and how a combination of different things all came together to cause his mental state to collapse and then how he set about getting well again. We talk about lad culture and we talk about society's obsession with getting drunk. We talk about men's mental health and masculinity, how to open up to your mates and what it's like to live a sober life after living a not very sober one for a very long time. We also touch on anxious thinking and catastrophizing and how the sort of the day-to-day smaller elements of modern life can start to mess with your head and how that can get out of control when they all start to like build up and take over. Sam's book, Sort Your Head Out, is an absolutely wonderful read. I can't recommend it highly enough. I talk a lot about relatability on this podcast. That's something that's really important to the mental health conversation. And for me personally, I found Sam's book really relatable. A lot of stuff about his childhood and his teenage years, a lot of stuff about drinking and like 90s lad culture. That's kind of my era too. But yeah, we get into all of that in this episode. It's a wonderful chat. I love chatting to Sam. He's got so much to say and so many different things that he can talk about. This conversation could have gone anywhere. And I had a page worth of notes. And we just talked about loads of other stuff and still managed to fill an hour. I think if he ever came on again, we could easily do a whole other episode talking about mental health stuff and go nowhere near the stuff that we talked about today. It was a really wonderful experience to chat to him. You know, Sam sort of describes himself as a Jack the Lad type of character. And I think to have a guy that can sit there really openly talk about like, you know, booze and football and all this sort of, you know, quote unquote laddie stuff, but also be able to sit there and tell you how he's feeling. And what's going on with his mental health and, you know, that side of things as well. It's just this like really lovely contrast and it's really, really important. I think that that men learn that they can be both of these things, right? You can still be a lad and have a laugh and talk about your feelings. Yeah, it's just a really lovely combination and that really comes through the chat I think. I've put the links to Sam's social media in the episode notes. There's links to his website as well and on there there's links to absolutely everything that he does. His book is out now wherever you get your books from. Support your local bookshop innit? Times are hard but yeah check it out man it's a really really good read. If you want to catch up with me all my stuff is in the episode notes as well. Feel free to get in touch I'm always happy to chat. This is episode 127 of the Proper Mental Podcast with Sam Delaney. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is Mr. Sam Delaney. How are you, mate? Good. Thanks, mate. Thanks for asking me on. Oh, mate. Um, I sent you an email because I've just finished reading your book and um, I really liked it, mate. I really, really, um, I kind of, yeah, I made a lot of notes, put it that way. I found a lot of it very, very uh, relatable, but I suppose that's as good a place to start as any. But how does that feel having that out in the world you know I know you've been writing about mental health for quite a while now but I think a book is different right to put it all in one place and like just send it out into the ether yeah well it's got more attention to the stories like I feel like a lot of the stories in there I've kind of written on my Substack and have kind of been out there in bits and bobs on my podcast and stuff so 
in some ways I sort of didn't feel nervous because I thought, oh, this is not, this isn't like out of the blue. It's been like a slow build up, you know, over the last few years, I've been increasingly more open about my mental health, my, um, my, you know, my bad habits that I used to have and how I got over them. And, um, and so it was quite nice in that way is that I didn't sort of go from one minute, not sharing any of that stuff to bam, I've a whole book revealing all that's how it felt to me. But because the books had, uh, I've been lucky. It's had quite a lot of attention. It's uh, some people you realize, well, not everyone's been following all your writing and podcasting, Sam. So for some people, they don't didn't know any of this. So there's like some colleagues and even some relatives who are like, oh, wow, I didn't know any of that. But even those people, um, they might have been shocked and surprised by some of it, I suppose. But everyone's been so nice and like positive. And I, you know, and it's it's a good the, the thing about my experience of this book being published, I hope is, you know, good lesson that I, I want to pass on to everyone is that if you're really honest, right? If you're quite, if you're honest and vulnerable and just find a way of being your like authentic self, the way people, what I found is the way people react is amazing. And it sort of reinstills quite a lot of faith in other people. You know, the truth sets you free. So I feel all right about it. And I know, you know, I've got mates who've written, memoirs and stuff and who have found it very very difficult and I really feel for them and I know it can be very difficult when you're sharing painful things that have happened to you in your childhood or whatever but for me first of all you know I didn't have an abusive childhood or anything like that so I'm not reliving that level of trauma um I think you know one of the whole points of my book is, is that my life kind of pretty ordinary and and the point I'm trying to make is it was an ordinary life both my childhood and my adulthood and yet nevertheless I still fell victim to pain sadness shame depression started drinking too much the coping mechanism my point is that it can happen to anyone do you know what I mean um but yeah a, a lot of people I know have written about their lives and have found it very traumatic almost like they're having to relive their trauma I can understand and see that and relate to it, I guess. But for me personally, I found it mostly a positive and therapeutic experience publishing this book. Yeah. I mean, that's a massive uh, positive to take away from it. Right. And you know what you mentioned there about uh, trauma or lack thereof, that's something that really like stood out to me, you know, and um, I had problems with my mental health for a long time, Sam. And one of the things that kind of stopped me being able to do anything about that is because I kind of had this thought of, you know, there was no trauma in my life and everywhere I looked, particularly mm. driven in like the media and sort of fiction, really. Um, it's always a big traumatic event, which leads to this thing, which of course is the case for a lot of people, but it's also not the case for a lot of people and I was very much like yeah th th this it, this thing can't be happening to me because I've never experienced this this big thing but I think that's really common isn't it the the sort of the day-to-day -day, almost mundane aspects of your mental health slowly collapsing rather than having one big thing that sets it all off yeah it, there's a phrase that I heard once in a in a group which was it's not the elephants that will kill you it's the ants right and that's a phrase that I heard, I loved, I've reused. It's in the book. I talk about it all the time because it, you know, reflects exactly what you're saying is that the, the little cuts and bruises that you suffer from childhood onwards, you don't address because none of them seem quite big enough. And the like you say, the stories that you hear about people who have suffered, you know, mental health difficulties, um, always seem to be the ones that are reported and written about are the big, huge, disastrous ones. So you're talking about abuse, uh, uh, grief, you know, it, it, these sorts of things, um, war, what have you. And if you haven't been through something like that, then you sort of think, oh, why am I feeling this way? I have no right to feel pain. I have no right to feel this way. And that's basically why it's important that, we all share our stories because like you say, yeah, a lot of people are suffering because they've been through very big, severe traumas, but I would say more people are suffering to one degree or another without any of those big traumas because they are overwhelmed 
by life at times. They're overstretched or there was small difficulties in their in their youth or sources of shame or insecurity that they never really addressed because they weren't really emotionally aware enough to do so. And, and none of us, let's be honest, none of us are really raised, all due respect to our parents, but I just don't think, you know, certainly my generation, we just weren't really raised to sort of think about that stuff. I mean, you know, my kids now get told about being in touch with their emotions in school pretty much every day. Whereas like, you know, my generation, my parents were loving people, but they weren't, you know, they weren't saying, look, it's, you know, important for you to look after yourself or it's important for yourself to rest or it's important to understand that when little conflicts happen or, or sadnesses or sources or, or, or there's a bit of chaos in your life that will hurt you and you know you need to learn how to get through that shit it just wasn't it wasn't part of the like dialogue that went on in, in my generation so you have no idea really how to deal with bad times or good times and and like a lot of people of my generation as well booze and drugs were like the number one way of basically getting rid of that stuff you know just coping with it because you didn't have any more sustainable or mature way of doing it yeah that's it there's so like so many like aspects of distraction are so normalized by society isn't it like drink mm -hmm. like drugs like you know fucking social media or whatever work, it is work yeah. is the massive one that's normalized you know uh everyone sort of working themselves into the absolute ground which is something that i did both pre and post sobriety i still got a tendency to do it now that i have to keep a very close eye on right it's all just it's all just more distraction distraction from your feelings distractions your pain or creating kind of creating sort of like false validation like you're thinking how can i make myself look or feel good how how can I win people's approval? Maybe if I just work really hard and succeed and fulfill ambitions professionally and earn money, then people will see me in a better light, you know? And um, that's, yeah, not it's not really that much different to the reasons why I drank or took drugs, you know? Yeah, definitely. It's, um, I suppose as well as for a lot of people that they don't know that they're struggling you know, because if you're not sitting with the yeah. stuff and you're just, just distraction is like automatic pilot. So now I can, mm. I know when I'm distracting myself, but I distracted myself for about 20 years, Sam, without knowing that what I was doing was distractive behavior, if that makes sense. Yeah. And you kind of, you get to a point where you're not very well, your mental health is not in a good place. But you don't even know it is because everyone else is kind of looks the same around you. Right. And it's like, I just can't let them find out about what I'm experiencing right now. A hundred percent. One of them, that's the other main message of the book is see it, step back and understand what it is you've been through and what you're going through. Stop belittling your own feelings. Stop ignoring them. Stop that sort of like shit talking yourself in your head where you go, oh, you've got nothing to, but you've got nothing to be sad about. Suck it up. Stop being a whinger. These are the things that we tell ourselves, particularly blokes do, but I'm sure everyone does, you know, but I think it's particularly a bloke thing and kind of just having a go at yourself and thinking, I don't have the right to feel like this. You just don't really. Yeah. For years, I didn't acknowledge it. Then eventually it catches up with me and I'm thinking, actually, I feel really bad and I'm struggling to just do, I'm struggling to just function normally. Right. Um, but even at that stage, I can see something's gone wrong, but I still won't open up or admit to anyone else because I think I don't have a good enough reason to. Now, here I am today and, and you are as well. And we can both sit here and say, yeah, we we now realise that for years we've been finding every way we could to sort of hide these feelings, not just from the outside world, but from ourselves like just finding a way every day to not face up to the way we felt. And the more we didn't face up to it, the worse it got, you know, and then you hit a crisis, don't you? And in my case, my crisis was drinking too much as a form of self-medication. And then, you know, that crisis turned out to be a gift because only then out of sheer desperation was I forced to confront all the shit I'd been trying to ignore for years forced to find other ways, non-boozing ways to cope, which basically meant sitting with it, acknowledging it, facing up to it. And my main message at the end of this book is just 
acknowledge it whoever you are whatever you're going through acknowledge that there there are there is some pain in your life only because you're human not because your life is a disaster but just because you are a human being it's part of being human none of us are immune to it no one is immune to this stuff so just be aware of it like you said be aware of it and then treat yourself kindly and gently when you need to and that's sort of quite a simple message in a way isn't it i mean I think it applies to everyone. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. And, but then again, I think, and I don't know if this is just like a bloke thing or just a lad thing, but we have to learn to do it. Right. So how I would treat myself is how I, cause it's essentially you learn how to treat yourself by how you treat other people, I think, because you're not mm. thinking internally when you're, a, when you're a young man or a teenager or whatever. So, yeah. you, you know, you start off by piss taking, or um, if you're uncomfortable with certain emotions, like most blokes are quite comfortable with like anger and aggression. So it's very easy if you don't want to sit with what you're feeling to get angry with yourself, because that's, mm. that makes more sense, right? You can get that. You can call yourself a cunt. You can, do you know what I mean? You can have yeah. a go at yourself and belittle yourself because we're used to doing that because we're, as we're growing up, that's how we interact with our mates and the people around us and the people at the football and all that sort of stuff. So mm. it's all this like almost conditioning, isn't it? From society, from when we're a young age. And then when things go wrong, we've got the wrong tools for the job when things yeah. go wrong, I think, yeah? But I, I always say this, like, my generation, we like, we took nothing seriously, least of all ourselves. And that sort of ties into what you're saying, the whole kind of banter culture, right? Which, don't get me wrong, I'm not one of these people who's like, oh, I used to be a lad and I used to be full of banter and love taking a piss down the pub, but now I realise that was wrong. No, I think it's a really good laugh. I've always enjoyed it and I still enjoy it, right? But it is not the solution to everything. It is not a, a, a des it's not a holistic design for life. It is part of being a bloke, I suppose, from out, you know, from, from a British bloke, from a certain background, certain culture, and we all enjoy it, right? And I'm not saying, hey, man, we've got to stop that and we've got to start being really serious and engaging in serious conversation about our feelings all the time. All it is is, yeah, have a laugh. Sometimes part of being with your mates is, you know, it's quite OK to just treat that as a time to distract yourself. That's what I used to think. I used to think I've had a shit week. I'm feeling really miserable, but at least I'm going to football on Saturday. And when I'm in the pub, with my mates, no one will talk about anything remotely serious. We will just rip the piss out of each other, talk absolute rubbish, get very drunk, and my whole mind will be distracted for the best part of a day, right? And, yeah, there's nothing really that wrong with that, but it's not – you can't be doing that the whole time. That can't, Your only way of dealing with feeling sad or insecure or scared, right, which means that we all get, it's like, you can't say, well, my only way of dealing with that is to meet up with a load of mates and get twatted and talk shit. I mean, that's just unsustainable. There needs to be something else. Do you know what I mean? And, um, and yeah, I mean, it, like you say, I mean, it's just sort of so normalised, that kind of idea of don't take yourself seriously. You're mucking around. The last thing you're going to take seriously is yourself. Because taking yourself seriously is almost like the cardinal sin. It's like you're pretentious. If you take yourself seriously, you're pretentious. You've got a, you're vain, you're egotistical, you're navel gazing, all of those things. That, that Those are the sort of phrases and words that I would have used about anyone who I perceived as taking themselves seriously. And talking about their feelings or overanalyzing themselves, um, if I didn't feel that they were like people who had lived through trauma that I, that I deemed to be you know, sufficient trauma for you to feel sad. I thought, ah, oh, so pretentious. Do you know what I mean? And it's horrible. That was the culture that I was very complicit in myself. I would have been quite unsympathetic with people who, who I felt were like, yeah, a little bit too, you know, introspective, I suppose. But I suppose, you know, the, the message I'm trying to get across and, and, you know, and I think you are and everyone else who's involved in this sort of world now is, you know, you you should be a bit kinder to yourself and you should perhaps reflect a bit more on your own feelings, where they come from and how you can deal with them. But that doesn't mean you have to cash in your Jack the Lad card. doesn't mean you have to become boring and weird and sort of constantly, like, introspective. Do you know what I mean? It's not, it's not an all or nothing choice here, right? You can still be a laugh, but just, 
I guess just be a bit nicer to yourself and think actually you can take your pain seriously. You can acknowledge it and you can do something about it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And I suppose once you go first, right, in your group of mates, you know, obviously you've got to pick your moment, you know, like mm. there are certain situations where it's not going to go down as well, is it maybe? But um, I think quite often when someone goes first, it gives other people permission to then go and you might have like a group of people and everyone's kind of feeling whether it's financial stuff or work stuff or wife stuff or whatever mm. it is and as soon as someone sort of comes out and says look this is this is me this is what I've got going on and this is how it's making me feel then it kind of it's like an mm. unofficial permission isn't it for other people to then say well that fucking rings a bell with me you know I feel a bit like that too and it can kind of like open up a, a, a chain of events where everyone can then be that vulnerable and be that open I think yeah i think so and it's um it's funny how it works with mates like it's it, it works in a lot of different sort of imperceptible ways some some mates if you just drop in to conversation vulnerabilities about yourself just casually not like hey man i, I want to sit down with you and have a chat about how i've been feeling full of like fear recently about my job or whatever it can just be little stuff I, I'm a great believer in sort of sometimes answering honestly with brutal honesty, but at the same time, a bit of levity when someone asks you how they are, right? So one phrase that I've really tried to start normalising with people is the, is this one, which is very un-British, right? They say, I'm fucking skint, <laughs> right? Now, when I was growing up in my house with my family and the people around me, Saying you were skint was just normal, everyday stuff. You go, how oh, are you? I'm fucking skint, right? And then you grow up and you become a little bit more middle class, right? And suddenly admitting that you're skint or that you have money issues is almost like, oh, my God, you don't do that because you have to appear to be in control and, and doing quite well, thank you very much, right? You never get at the school gates with the other like middle class parents and I'm saying I'm skint. But let me tell you, now more than ever, People are fucking skin. We're all skin, right? Everyone's feeling skin. And that is one of the biggest triggers where you start to feel insecure, worried. Um, your self-esteem can plummet because I know, you know, I've got two kids and when I kind of am feeling a bit like uh, I'm feeling a pinch at the end of the month, right? And I'm like, oh, we can't, no, we can't go out for a pizza or whatever. You start, dads, I think, start telling themselves huge stories around that rather than just thinking, it's the end of the month. I'm a bit skin. Oh, well, it'll pick up in a few weeks or whatever. Right. You start to think, great, I'm a bloody failure. And my kids are having an awful life. And they're like, Oliver Twist. And it's all because their dad is a bum. Right. And all the rest of it. And you can start to yourself like mad, really like self-critical stories. And part of that is that a lot of people hide the realities of their life from each other, don't they? No one says that I'm skin. It's only a little thing. But that's just one example of the sort of things you can say. Do you know what I mean? Every day you chuck it in, you go, I'm skin, or you go, I argued with the missus or whatever. Just chucking in little admissions that don't have to be a big, long speech, but showing other people that you're perfectly happy and relaxed with admitting the bad things that are happening or the irrational things that are making you feel a bit low that day. That sends a message out to them that if ever they feel like they need to tell someone that they're feeling shit, you'd probably be a good person because you've told them loads of times. Do you know what I mean? You're never going to tell your mate who's constantly smug and bragging that you're feeling shit. You're not. And we've all got mates like that, right? And that's going to be the last guy you go to because you think, oh, God, I can't, I can't bear him knowing that I'm feeling rubbish or that things are going badly for me at the moment, either at home or in my career or wherever, because they'll love it and they'll just use it as an excuse to sort of, you know, tell me how well things are going for them. Be the guy who's sort of happy. So I'm not saying be a moaner. I'm just saying tell the truth. And then that will send a signal out to your mates that they can tell the truth back to you when they're struggling. Because, you know, it's, it's quite handy to know that everyone goes through shit, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. And it's kind of like, I suppose, advertising a safe space, really, without making a big deal mm. of it. You know, people just know that yeah. you're the one that they, yeah, they, if they're skinned, go and chat to Sam. He knows a yeah. thing or two about that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> just that feeling you get. Sometimes I get it just for a day. Sometimes I'm just like, you know, and you're just like short term skin that day. 
right? You're like, oh, I think I'm going to be all right. But I mean, suddenly, like, there's not enough money in my account today to pay this bill, so it's going to have to wait. And that's just normal. That's just life for so many people. And yet, if I'm having a bad day and I'm a bit tired, an incident like that can send me into, like, a proper, like, low in which I start to extrapolate it out into lots of different feelings about how I'm a failure and how I've wasted my life. And, I, and it'll be like one bill that's going to be paid a day late. So these little triggers, they're real. And back in the day, I would have never admitted to that because I'd have been so embarrassed. But now I just think I admit to all this shit because I'm a I'm reasonably happy and optimistic guy most of the time. I certainly probably appear that way to most people outwardly. But I go through that shit every day. Do you know what I mean? Or, or at least a couple of times a week, I will be worrying myself sick about something that's pretty, pretty kind of trivial on the face of it. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. little shit can just make you just freak out sometimes. And I think it's important for everyone to know. I want to tell everyone that that I think it happens to all of us. So don't feel ashamed or embarrassed by it, you know. Yeah, completely, man. I really identified with that idea of like catastrophizing, you know, so you can't feel mm. that feel on one day. And I have that sometimes, you know, and then, you know, I'm self-employed and I'm trying to work all this stuff out. My wife will come home from work. She'll be, how's things? And I go, I can't talk now. I'm getting ready to sell the car on Autostrader, you know? And <laughs> yeah. You just, you straight away, your mind yeah, goes, to like, how can I get some, how can I get some money, you know? And you Absolute just go down this classic. rabbit hole. And it's weird, isn't it? Because like intellectually, you know, you'll be all right, but it's really hard to separate yeah. that in the moment. It's really hard to separate that. Very hard. A lot of things have got to happen before my kids end up on the street. But in that moment, straight away, you're like, well, that's it. We're fucked now. That's, that's it. it. We're fucked. Game over. And, yeah. and, and I don't know what it's like with your missus, but like I, I look back on times at which I've been deeply like that. Exactly that scenario you just explained where, where when my wife used to work full time, now she's self-employed too. But when I was self-employed and she worked full time, exactly that scenario, she would come home. How's it going? She probably had a really tiring day with a tiring commute. And as soon as she came through the door, I'd be like pulling my hair out when I still had there. Like, oh, you know, uh, you know, the weight of the world's on my shoulders. I think I'm writing a book about the time when I, I wasn't trying to sell the car, but I was looking into it. And I can't even remember what motivated this, but I was looking into going into the gravel business, right? I'd spent 20 years being a journalist, a reasonably successful journalist. And then on the basis of one bad day, maybe where like one of my pitches had been rejected by a newspaper or something, I was like, fine, do you know what? I'm going to get into the gravel business. There's a lot of money in that. All you have to do is buy gravel in bulk and then sell it to people to put in their gardens, right? What could be easier? And my wife's like, fuck you now. You've, you're not going into the gravel business, mate. You need a rest. But do you, I look back on times like that and I think, it must be really difficult for our wives or whoever your significant other is, the person who's trying to make you look at something rationally and you just can't. And even though they're saying it, their words make sense. You can't argue with them, but it doesn't matter how rational they are and how well they break it down. It's very hard for you to stop worrying. And I compare it to the fact that like, you know, some people are scared of flying and you can explain the science and the physics of why a plane will not crash and how it stays up in the air. And on an intellectual level, they will 100% understand that and believe it. Uh, but emotionally, they are still terrified that it's going to crash. And that is how I have felt at times in my life when I've start, gone into panic slash uh, catastrophizing mode. You know, yeah. no, no one can get through to me. And you look at, and I've, I, my wife has tried to get through. She's a very rational, down to earth person. And I think it's like, you know, I've seen her like get tearful in the past because it's so frustrating for her to like tell me, no, Sam, all these things that you're imagining, they're really not likely to ever happen. And no matter what she says, I will still be like going over the same thing over and over and over again. That's what I have a tendency to do. I am a lot better these days. I don't have that as regularly, but I, 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 you know, in the past, I really had a tendency to, for my brain to almost hook on to a negative thought and just not let go of it. Like be like a Rottweiler, not let go of it, go over it again and again and again. And you go to bed at night and you think, in the morning, I'll feel better and that thought would have gone. And you wake up in the morning and you're like, oh, shit, that thought's still there. I still think I'm going to have the house repossessed. 
on the basis of nothing at all. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It kind of follows you around like a low-level fear that's just always tapping you on the shoulder. Going, I'm still, I'm still here, mate. Don't you forget? Don't you forget about yeah, me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not letting you off the hook that easy. Yeah, yeah. But I, I was thinking, like, to kind of, I suppose, sling a positive on that, though, Sam. I suppose it's also really good um, that you feel that you can talk to your wife about it, right? Because I think for yeah, a long yeah. time, uh, particularly with men, again, it's that whole thing of um, it's normally when uh, you know someone ends their life by suicide, and everyone says, "Oh, I had no idea," you know, and it's clearly mm. stuff been going on, isn't it? And I think sometimes, as much as I do you know probably do my wife's head in more than warrior to be honest when i talk about mm. this stuff i think it's you know the alternative is me keeping it all to me and pretending everything's okay and i'm pretending that mm. everything's fine and there's nothing to worry about and we can kind of only do that for so long so i suppose it's finding the balance isn't it by being able to like cope with the worry and express it without hiding it but without getting carried yeah. away by it. it's a fucking tricky business man it's really really tricky yeah um but there are lots of, you know, I think ultimately those things, I don't think you ever eradicate them. I don't think anyone does. I think some of us have a particular predisposition to like feeling anxious and, and, and stuff. And, but I think whoever you are, even if you're a chilled out person, you still have these moments and these times. And for me, I still have them, but I have so many more ways of coping with them. And I'm so much more aware of them. I can see it. I can see anxiety coming on the horizon and I can brace myself and prepare myself for it, right? Uh, so going back to what you said earlier, just acknowledging this stuff is such a huge step, you know? And uh, nowadays I'm like, you know, thoughts might come along, intrusive thoughts, worries. And I'm, I'm much better at, I think, like they'll come and they might linger around for a little bit but I've got a whole toolkit, I think, of, of of ways to get rid of them. And quite low down on that list would have been, well, in the old days, I, I literally went through a couple of years where I just, as soon as I felt it coming, I'd be like, right, I've got, I've got to get to the pub. I've got to get to, sometimes I'd be like, well, I started drinking like pretty much when the pub's open, because if I was at home on my own in the day, my wife was at work, kids are at school, I'd be like, the bad thoughts start visiting mid-morning. I'm like, I'm going straight to the pub because I learned that pouring a couple of drinks inside me quite quickly numbed it off, right? But it would only, of course, come back worse. And then you get into that really toxic cycle of like, in the end, you could never feel relaxed or happy at all unless you've got drink or drugs inside of you. Now I've got, what well, you know, once you start facing this shit, really facing it, learning where it comes from, learning how it works. You start finding all these different ways of dealing with it. I do talk to my wife still, but it's in a, a much briefer way and it, it's a much more sensible way. Where I used to just turn worries over and just almost monologue at her sometimes over and over and over again. And she'd have to tell me a million times, you know, it's going to be okay and explain to me why before it even registered at all. That's not necessary anymore. I think it's normal to say, oh, I'm a bit worried about this today. And then she might go, oh, well, you know, don't worry if you thought about trying this or something. But that's just one part of how I deal with it. Probably the main part I feel of it is that I think here's some thoughts that are worrisome. They're coming my way. That might be because I'm a bit tired at the moment or I'm a bit overworked, overstressed. My brain's a bit too busy. I'm overstretching myself. Or maybe it's like something simple, like I'm hungry or something's knocked me off knocked me off balance mentally so these thoughts are coming and I will try to ignore them and I will wait for them to pass like a cloud passing in the sky and they fucking will and I know that in a day maximum two I'll be on to the next thing do you know what I mean and yeah I sort of tend to cope in that way now which I wouldn't have had any capacity to do 10 years ago yeah, just, yeah, I like that, seeing them coming and then being prepared to ride them out. You know, I was trying to mm. remind myself in the moment to look for evidence. It's like, do you remember last year, that time you tried to sell the car? Well, you didn't sell the car mm. and you've still got that car. And you're still you know, here, yeah. Yeah, you're surrounded by evidence to the contrary, right? That you've you've been okay yeah. this time, you'll be okay next time, yeah. But it's something that um really stood out from reading your book, mate, was, uh, you know, just speaking of anxiety and worry and stuff like that. You wrote a lot about... Um, when you were like a, a teenager, when you're a young lad and having like a constant amount of like hyper awareness underneath 
everything mm. and being quite, you know, on and anxious even then. Do you mm. think it's like roundabout, you know, in those sorts of years that you sort of learned that booze was a really good way of quieting down those thoughts and feelings? Yeah, I think that, um, I, th I think it was a therapist or someone at, at like the rehab place I, I sort of went to. I, I never checked in as an inpatient there, but I went to a, a famous sort of rehab facility and got help from the professionals there. And they told me a lot of really useful things on like my first day. One of them was like, Oh, this might not have been the first day, but someone said to me there, listen, you know, the point at which you start, you discovered using drink and drugs as a means of sort of having fun. That's how I would have seen it, having fun. But really it was of switching off and not thinking about anything else other than what was happening in that moment, right? Um, that's the moment in which you stop emotionally maturing in a way because you don't, you don't really develop the any other ways of confronting big emotion whether that's negative emotion or even positive emotion so for instance what do you do with a surfeit of joy the likes of which you might get in adulthood when you get a new job offer right or whatever or or you know you're getting married uh or any of these other things if i think of those big moments in my life what did i do when i got any big job offer i went out and got smashed to celebrate what did I do when I got engaged? I got absolutely twatted. What did I do on my wedding day? I was absolutely off my face on my wedding day. Most blokes are. Do you know what I mean? What did I do when my kids were born? My wife was in hospital for the night and I've gone. And when I've left the hospital, when it's chucking out time, I've called my mate and said, come on, we're celebrating. And you've gone and got twatted. Because if, if West Ham won, if my team won, I'd react by going, right, we've won. We've got to go and get twatted. Do you know what I mean? So it wasn't just negative emotions I didn't know how to deal with. I didn't know how to confront and sit with positive emotions either. And anyway, this person at Pro said to me, the problem is because you've never learned how to process these properly. You know, the point at which you, you stopped learning was the point at which you started drinking. And I said, well, you know, I was drinking and smoking spliffs down the park from about 12 onwards, as most people in my generation were. You know, you're going down the park with your mates with warm bottles of lager that you've nicked off someone's dad or something like that, right? And uh, and they and I was 40 when I got sober, right? I'm four, I'm nearly 48 now. And uh, they said, well, yeah, 12 to between 12 and 40, you've missed missed out a huge amount of emotional maturity and development. And when they said it, I thought, mm, I don't know, that sounds a little bit far-fetched. I'm not still a 12-year-old inside. Now I look back and I think, actually, I think I was. I couldn't control anger that well. I couldn't control sadness that well. I didn't know how to deal with worry and anxiety and fear at all. You know, uh, I just couldn't do any of those things. You know, I didn't know how to deal with happiness. When I first got sober, a couple of good things happened to me in the first year that were proper, like, legitimately causes for celebration. And I was so, I just didn't know what to do because I thought, well, I have to mark this. I have to honour this great thing that has happened. I have to, like, it's happened. And if I don't celebrate it and mark it in some way, then I'm wasting it. But I couldn't think how it could be done without going and getting wasted. So I would do things like, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd sort of try and get high in some other, like, shit way like drinking a load of coffee and red bull or like when i was first sober i did still smoke the occasional spliff which never made me feel that good but it was like i had to do something do you know what i mean i had to do something to to, to mark it and that was like i was pretty narrow-minded and unimaginative the only way i could celebrate or acknowledge anything good happening was through seeking inebriation rather than sitting with this just natural fucking joy and sense of achievement that you have when something good happens to you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's tricky, isn't it? It's really, really, uh, really tricky. I always think like if you'd look at the the booze and particularly in our culture, you know, for like young lads and, and stuff like that is, you know, when I think back to my own experience, I had a like really, really good group of friends. You know, we had a lot of laughs up to all the usual sort of stuff that teenage boys mm. do. But then alongside all that, there's that whole sort of, I was also very, very aware that, you know, I don't know, you turn up at school and you've got maybe worn the same jumper twice in a week and someone spots it that, that you're going to have a very, very hard time. <laughs> and you kind of mm. like walk in this really thin line, isn't it? Between trying to like blend in and 
uh, and pretend everything's okay while going along with what everyone else is is doing and I think that kind of yeah that mindset as we get older it kind of trains you to almost like look for problems that aren't there or expect things to be coming out around the corner but booze really helps that to settle doesn't it particularly when you're like a, a teenager or, or a young man it helps you kind of like fit in and not to worry about those things kind of like what you what you said there yeah yeah totally I mean I also like my 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 home life was very chaotic it wasn't unloving and it wasn't abusive but it was really chaotic we lived in a very chaotic and sort of volatile home where sometimes there was violence, not really against me, but it was sort of like we lived in a little house where, and it was, we were a single parent family. My mum trying to like work full time whilst take care of me and my three brothers. Right. And I was the youngest by quite some margin. So when I was still like primary school, all of my brothers were like teenagers and they were quite rebellious and off the rails. And because of the nature of our house, it was a bit lawless and anarchic. So because my mum was always at work. And so our house became like a magnet for all the other kind of waifs and strays and teenagers from the area. It was like, you know, there's always a house in in teenagers. You probably remember the one that you went to. Like, there's one house where everyone could just go. It was a free house all the time. But I was like a kid. And there'd be like all these like sort of quite scary older lads around the house taking drugs getting drunk, sometimes fighting, sometimes pulling knives, but also sometimes just having a right laugh. Uh, but I would be exposed to things that I shouldn't really have been exposed to when I was when I was that age. And in some ways, it sharpened me. It sharpened my humour and my confidence because I was used to being around a rough and tumble atmosphere and I was used to sort of engaging in, in banter and stuff with older blokes, which sort of served me well in in other parts of my life like at school or, or you know I wasn't easily intimidated and I could sort of I could hold my own verbally in lots of different situations but in other ways what it did was it just made me there was no kind of settled place in my life I was either at school which as you described is a bit of a minefield every day or I was at home where it was just like an utter madhouse you never knew there was always different people sleeping on the sofa we had different lodges coming and going my mum had various different boyfriends who would sort of make cameo appearances and then disappear. So there was never a sort of settled atmosphere. So yes, it, that kind of, I think that was very formative on me. And it meant that I carried it in through teens and into adulthood, a sense of I could never quite sit comfortably. I was always expecting exactly as you described something around the corner. And, um, and yeah, I was very anxious, even in adulthood. I was sort of superficially confident. I projected a very confident persona. And then, you know, in my career as a journalist and then a broadcaster, and I sort of had to be confident. It was part and parcel of the job. And I think I was really had a reputation for being a particularly confident bloke. But I was so riddled beneath it with anxiety over the smallest things, you know, all the time. And that's why I would work myself silly and then after work go and get absolutely smashed at every opportunity I got you know not drinking in a normal civilized way uh, but by the way I don't think it's out of the ordinary I think that you know you and and you know I, I would guess that you and your mates and everyone you've grown up around would be the same we didn't drink normally like I'm going to go for a couple of drinks after work it would be like if you're not working you're out getting like really wrecked like fucking olympic level wreck you, you want to get into a terrible situation you want to have the story the next day do you know what i mean but i think going back to what you originally said i think it all stems back to a sense of constant anxiety and insecurity and an inability to just relax at the end of the day and just sit and chill in my own company you know yeah, definitely. And it is, you know, to some extent to kind of, I don't know, to almost fly under the radar in some ways, you have to pretend to be certain things. And, you know, when we, for a yeah. long time, if we pretend to be something that we're not, um, you know, mm. that's a, that's a, always a, a fine line to walk, isn't it? When it comes to like mental health problems and, and things like that, you know, there's a, a certain level of pretense drains that energy. And when the emotional tanks empty, then things like depression can kind of, uh, sneak straight in, you know, how did, um, yeah how did it for yourself how did it sort of build and boil over to the point where you're like do you know what the drinks got to go you know how did um how did sobriety sort of happen for you Sam? 
Well, it crept up. I think for years I was an absolutely what I would deem in in the context of my life and my peer group or whatever, a pretty ordinary sort of level drinker. I always say I wasn't in the Champions League places amongst my group of mates. I was barely in Europa League places. So you often compare yourself to the you, you can only compare yourself to the other people around you, both in terms of me and my brothers. I wasn't the worst. Then I got me and my schoolmates who I grew up with. I was nowhere near the worst. And then when I started working in the media and had mates through work, I was never the worst there. I mean, you know, you come across all sorts of like wild people. And so I never was able to perceive myself as as being problematic in the way that I used drink and drugs, because there was always several examples of people who were much worse than me. And so I kind of just muddled through my 20s and most of my 30s, being the sort of guy who'd be out, you know, maybe three, four times a week, like on the piss. And then I'd go through periods of taking drugs like cocaine mainly, but it would be like a weekend thing if you were at a party or doing something special. And then when I got into my late 30s, I think really I was just overstretched and overwhelmed. I hadn't addressed all of these different issues that had been haunting me since childhood. Um, and on top of that, father comes along. All the stress you have about responsibility, money, etc., is suddenly heightened to a huge extent because you're responsible for other people. Um, and I was working like to an insane extent to try and, because I was just so worried and paranoid about, you know, being self-employed and every job being my last sort of thing. So I started to totally overstretch myself, lose all sight of taking care of myself and slowly the drinking. And also by that stage, I'd been through a couple of periods of quite bad depression and anxiety that I hadn't really dealt with properly. I dabbled in seeing a bit of therapist. I'd gone to the GP. I'd been prescribed medication, which I'd gone on and then off again. And the experience of it had been so awful that I think every time I got the hint, it might be coming back again. I would just be consumed by fear because it was the worst feeling I'd ever had when I'd got depressed and the anxiety got out. So I'd just drink, 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 snort, snort, snort immediately just to kill the pain before it set in. And that happened in my late thirties. And I think it was the last couple of years of my thirties between 38 and 40 things got out of control as I was working too hard and, you know, cut a long story as short as I can. It was like, it was at the stage where I realized I'm drinking in the morning I'm quite often doing coke in the morning, right? This isn't good. This isn't good to be doing this after I've dropped the kids off because if not, I feel like I can't face the day. Do you know what I mean? Or I can't, sometimes I was using it in a practical sense. I literally, the the, the schedule I had, right? Running between different places of work nonstop uh, and the energy that I required for it. I told myself that the I was being not responsible, but I thought, People wouldn't understand. My wife wouldn't understand. Society wouldn't understand. But this is the only way I can do what I need to do is to prop myself up with drink and drugs. That's what I was telling myself. But in the end, you know, I couldn't believe that lie forever. And, it's you know, in the end, when you've tried and failed to stop dozens of times and you just never can, you know, you might just about do a week at the most of, of laying off everything and then you just spring back even worse do you know what i mean and i you know i always think people go how do you know if you've got a problem i go well i think it's if you continually promise yourself you're not going to drink but then you end up drinking anyway and then you feel shit about it afterwards if that if that is a pattern that has emerged in your life then you have a drink problem now you might you, you can call it alcoholism or whatever i would just say just it is a problem if that is a drink problem, if you're if you're literally promising yourself you're not going to do something, you really don't want to do it, and yet you do it anyway, and then you feel shit, and then repeat the same pattern again and again, that's a problem. So I yeah, so basically I went, I sought help. I got a, I went to the Priory on the basis it was the only rehab place I'd heard of because it was famous in the paper and it was walking distance from my home. And I looked it up in the middle of the night. I was awake, which I very often was because I'd come home pissed and on quite a lot of coke and I would fall asleep but then like wake up again in the night wired and consumed by like 
anxiety, borderline panic attacks, sweating. My wife is asleep next to me. My kids are sleeping in the next room. And I'd be like practically crying with the frustration and fear of it all. And then this one night I Googled the Priory and it said there was a free assessment. So I put myself in online, half forgot about it the next day. But to my utter surprise, the in, uh, an individual had seen my, you know, that I'd completed. You know, whenever you complete a form on a website, you never expect anyone to reply, do you? You're sort of like, I might as well just fucking chuck that down straight down the toilet, right? In this case, not only did I get a reply, it was from an actual person and a personal email account going, hi, I saw you, you still want to do it? And I was like, oh, God, I was a bit like, oh, I forgot I did that in a moment of madness last night. It's fine. I'm all right now because I've had a few drinks again. I don't need to. But then on a whim on the day, I happened to be at home that day and they reminded me again because they must have a, a large dropout, you know, uh, ratio. And I sort of almost in the spirit of journalism and being I'm a bit of a nosy bastard. And I sort of was quite interested to see what it was like there. <laughs> And I think that's all I, I thought, well, I'm not doing anything else. Fuck it. I might as well drive up there and see what goes on in these places. So it was in that spirit. I went up there. I didn't tell my wife or anyone I was doing it. I went up there because I thought I don't want to tell her in case I go there. Or I hate it. And I never go back again. I'd have given her false hope. So I went up there and I met this woman and she was a highly trained therapist specializing in addiction. But she revealed to me in our first meeting that she was also herself a former addict and that's why she'd got into this world and so she had so she made me feel as if I, there was nothing I needed to be embarrassed by telling her because it was like her attitude was look whatever you tell me I bet I've done the same or worse you know and so that disarmed me it wasn't how I expected therapy to be it wasn't the cliches of therapy like tell me about your parents and all that shit it was kind of quite a lot of compassion and understanding and but there was a brutal truth in it, which was her saying, Sam, if you want to give up completely and for good, we can help you here. If your only interest is cutting down, we can't help you. And what's more, we don't think anyone can help you because once you've crossed a certain line, you know, cutting down is just not an option anymore. And the way she said it, I was just like, yeah, I believe every word she's saying. And that was, and I haven't had a drink since then. And I went home that day. And whilst I was doing the washing out, I said dead casual to my wife, oh, I went to the priory today. She went, you went where? Went to the priory. Why? I said, because I went to see uh, an addiction person who, who said they're going to help me get sober. I've signed up to it. Why didn't you tell me? And I said, I didn't want to in case I just went up there and didn't fancy it. And she went, oh, okay. But, you know, she was understandably sceptical because she'd heard me. I'd lied to her basically loads of times about, oh, I've given up. And I was did all the cliches, the Keith Chegwin cliches of her, like, telling her I'd stop. But then, like, I'm literally, I mean, it's so embarrassing, like, slipping miniatures of vodka into an orange juice. Do you know what I mean? At, at like, a family party to pretend I'm drinking orange juice. But in fact, I'm secretly getting drunk on vodka. I mean, ridiculous. So she was sceptical. But I stuck with it. I just stuck with it because I just... I knew it was like hearing a professional tell me this is all or nothing, mate. You're not going to ever cut. You're never going to get control of this. Try sobriety. It's much better. And she was right. It is. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. There's so much like acceptance in it. You almost have to like prepare to, you know, wave goodbye to a certain part of your life, you know? And it, like, yeah. I always felt like drinking really defined me, you know? And I was like, well, mm. if I'm not, if I'm not like Tom in the pub who has a pint and makes a joke and all the rest of it, then who am I? What the fuck am I? You know, yeah. like it, yeah. it, it was so much of my identity. And, um, but it's really weird. How did you find like um, putting down that coping mechanism? You know, you use a coping mechanism to get through life for all of those years. And suddenly mm. that's, that's gone. And I, I always love to talk to people who are sober about this because there's this real strong narrative um, and sobriety is a really popular topic at the moment and good it should be let's talk about it but there is this sort of narrative that like as soon as you get sober it's like oh it's great and my skin's amazing and my life's yeah, brilliant yeah. and I've got all this extra time and all this sort of stuff mm. that wasn't my experience it was fucking horrible yeah. like you know I had a, a coping yeah. mechanism for 20 years and I had to stop and go out into the world and it was mm. um it was scary and it was like quite shit at the times how was that experience for you to go back into your yeah, own life I, I I absolutely think you're right about that. I mean, I said something on Instagram the other day going, hey, I've just been to a gig and just goes to show you don't need to drink to have fun. And then I, I followed up on that a couple of days later because I thought all that, oh, 
you can have fun. It's not boring to be sober. Actually, it is if or if the only way you know how to have fun is to get pissed. And that was the case with me. I only really knew how to have fun when I was pissed. So when I stopped getting pissed, it was boring. I might as well be honest about that. But what you what you realise is, and I think the difference between people who, who don't stay sober and the people who do stay sober is the realisation that you have to change your life like in a bigger way, right? Which means just finding fun and joy and pleasure in other ways, right? That doesn't just involve get it switching off from reality right and but that takes time you don't give up alcohol one day and the next day you're like got these great new hobbies like suddenly you're really into yoga or running or any of this other shit it takes fucking ages most of us spend the first six months just eating loads of chocolate bars and getting fat and that's the other funny lie is that people go oh i feel great and i look great it's like i looked worse after six months i probably shouldn't say that in case it puts people off right but I look worse because I was like, <laughs> for a start, probably the cocaine had like limited my appetite somewhat, <laughs> right? Alcohol puts a bit of colour in your cheek. Suddenly I was pale and bloated because I had so much sugar uh, withdrawal that I'm like eating nonstop chocolate bars and stuff like that. And I was just like, it was just at that stage, in the early stage, you feel like you're foregoing a pleasure or you think like you're you're denying yourself something right and therefore you try to make amends and the way I did it was yeah I ate badly um like I say for that first year or so I started smoking spliffs a lot more than I had done in the past because I thought oh that's okay that doesn't count which is bollocks it totally does it's just another toxin that you're using to sort of distract yourself I became like I'd always been a bit of a workaholic I became even more of one. I threw myself into, it just so happened by coincidence, really that around the time I got sober, I got a couple of big, quite exciting new work projects and I started my own company. And that was just something I told myself, great, I've got a load of new energy, which means there's nothing. I thought it was a superpower to be sober. I thought you get all this extra energy. So there's nothing I, I have to say no to. I can do everything now because I've bought all this time and energy back. It's not true. You know, I burnt myself out actually again. Two years later, I eventually did get fit and healthy again, but I took that too far. And I was like, you know, not eating properly, not eating enough, but running and exercising constantly. So I became physically vulnerable, literally just like I was vulnerable to like collapse and exhaustion because I just kind of overstretched myself physically, mentally. I overstretched myself by working nonstop. I was definitely a classic example of a dry drunk or stark raving sober. You know, my moods re remained extremely volatile. I wasn't good to be around because I was so tired and stressed. I would often lose my temper. I made mad, volatile decisions at work. I was forever like fucking sacking people on a whim. Do you know what I mean? Um, and I would be like at home, I'd be working so much that when I was at home, I was almost as used as I was when I was drinking because I was sort of like spaced out. Like I was like, I'd been sedated because I just couldn't really talk or because I was just so exhausted from work. So it took me a couple of years really to start changing my life in a more meaningful way, being more reflective, treating myself with a bit more kindness, bringing more balance to my life. These are the things that are really important if you're going to have a sustainable life sober and just developing loads of new interests, passions, curiosities, taking the time to just draw more pleasure from the stuff that's already around you. But you don't really appreciate enough when you're drinking or taking drugs. Family life, the little joys of domestic living. I've, you know, I can draw a huge amount of pleasure out of the most trivial things now in my life that I would have just dismissed or ignored when I was like still drinking or taking drugs. So, yeah, it's about balance, isn't it? And um, it takes a while to get there, I think. And I think, you know, I've unfortunately, you know, I've sort of tried to help some people get sober as best I can. I'm not like I'm not a sober sobriety coach or an expert, but, you know, like I'm sure it's the same for you. People come to you and they ask advice or you know or ask your experience and so I've, I've been on that journey with a few people close to me since and 
some people have made it and some people haven't they've relapsed sometimes after six months or a year and i always can sort of see the clear differences some people tried to make significant changes in their complete lives and the other people thought all i have to do is make sure i don't have a drink so maybe if i eat these fucking snickers ice creams all day that will just distract me from wanting a drink and it's like no mate you have to make you have to stop thinking that you're denying yourself a pleasure and start thinking that you're actually gaining more pleasure you you're not losing something you'll get you're not losing booze you're gaining sobriety the people who you sort of suspect are going to relapse and very often do are the ones who sort of still hanker after alcohol think it'd be lovely to be pissed now but obviously i can't allow myself to be pissed because that would be problematic for me right whereas people who make it are the people who think oh my god i can't imagine anything worse than being drunk I mean, I have not, I don't know about you, I have nightmares. I have nightmares about being drunk where for some reason I've accidentally drunk alcohol and it is like a terrifying dream. It is by no means a fantasy. And I think once you start seeing it like that, you know you've kind of, I don't want to say cracked it because that sounds complacent, but you're in a much better place. Yeah, definitely. And I suppose all the work that you have to do on yourself to be able to fit back into the world without it means that you've changed. And when you've changed, then you yeah. don't need it. So it's almost like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy, but the good kind instead of like the bad kind that sort of kept you kept you in the pub. Yeah. yeah. Was, it, um, uh, was it a big decision or an easy decision to then start writing about all this stuff, Sam? Because, you know, particularly in your in your world that you work in and, you know, you've got a, a reputation for being this person and then suddenly you're like, right, I'm going to write about this stuff and talk about that stuff. It's again, it's a level of vulnerability up one, isn't it? Yeah, I think in my like in my career and in my sort of, um, you know, public facing persona such as it as it was, I never really showed much vulnerability because I had a sort of a cheeky Jack the Lad sort of persona in my writing and my broadcasting. And, you know, like going back to what I said earlier, it was all about not really taking myself seriously, being facetious, not taking anything that seriously, daftness. And it was all sort of hinged on that. And um, I think I fell into that because I found an aptitude when I started out of like making people laugh. And I was kind of, and I was, I warmed to that. I, I like it. Do you know what I mean? I like it, it, it from a, I suppose like an egotistical point of view, I get a little bit sort of addicted. If I can make someone laugh, I want to keep doing it again and again. I get a little buzz out of it sort of thing, but that's fine. But I put that out in front of everything else. All I wanted to do was be daft, take nothing seriously, get laughs out of people, right? So perhaps at times my writing and my broadcasting might have lacked a little bit of sincerity, which I think is quite important um, it, when you're communicating for a living. And um, after a couple of years of being sober and playing my sobriety down to people, which is what I did for the first year, people go, oh, I said, you didn't have a problem. I go, oh, no, I didn't have a problem. I just... I gave it a go and I, I liked it. So I just said, oh, just giving it, a, you know, it's just lasted for two years. Who knows if I'll do it forever? Never really opening up. Then after a couple of years, I wrote a piece about men and mental health for the Guardian. And they, and after the first draft, it was just about groups and, and resources, the growing amount of resources that were out there to help men in particular. And the editor came back to me and said, we like the piece, but I think you should put a bit more of yourself in it. You mentioned you don't drink anymore. Why don't you write a little bit about why that is and what your experiences of that are? And I've never really opened up about it before. And I wrote just a short new paragraph that she'd she'd asked me to put in just about myself and why I decided to, why I started drinking too much, why I decided to quit, how I started to quit, what difference that had made to my life. She said, write just a paragraph or two on that. So I did. And that little section of a much bigger piece seemed to get a huge reaction from people. And I, I was inundated with messages. And what I realized was the theme of them really was that I hadn't said anything particularly profound at all. But I think people, anyone who knew me or knew of me or had read my work before or heard me on the radio were very surprised that I was saying these things. Right. And then I thought, well, that, that's quite powerful because I've not got anything particularly new or profound or insightful to say, really, but it's not what you're saying. Sometimes it's how you're saying and who is saying it, right? And I'm thinking, this this is surprising people because they might see me as a 
Jack the lad who would never admit to being vulnerable, right, and never take anything seriously. And suddenly I'm going, actually, I went through a pretty tough time and it was quite serious and I felt really bloody miserable. And it seemed like a bigger deal coming from me. And that sort of, the response I got from it was probably the biggest response I'd had from anything I'd ever written in a newspaper. And that gave me a little buzz, probably from an ego point of view to a degree. I thought, oh, that, that that's really nice. Like, I've been sincere and honest and people react really well to that. Maybe I'll try more sincerity and honesty. And so then I started in lockdown writing a sub stack and it starts flowing out of me, you know, like, and it was good because I wasn't, didn't have an editor. I was just doing it for myself and then posting it out there online and stuff. And people started paying attention. And uh, once you, there was, once you realize that people respond positively to that stuff, not negatively, you know, you, you, in the end, I, you know, I, I always say to my wife, I've got mental health Tourette's now. I can't stop talking about this shit, right? Because once you've opened the floodgates, it just keeps coming out, doesn't it? Um, yeah. And so, yeah, and it's just nice in a way because it makes me feel better to share stuff. But I get messages from people saying that it helps them. And you know so it works both ways just sharing stuff i try not to give advice i don't think i'm qualified to i'm training as a counselor but i'm still in very early days of that so i really go out i try my absolute best not to give much in the way of advice but i do think that the more i share about the shit i've gone through or the anxieties and the fears that i had and still have you know that makes me it, it, it helps to get it off my chest but i can see it helps other people yeah, completely. You know, if people can relate to the things that you're talking about and writing about, but also in the way that you say it and in your voice and you you know, like this representation is, in, is important in the big yes. ways and also in the small ways as well. And I always remember yeah. when I, uh, when I wasn't doing too good and I'd look for answers and I'd look for them on, on lots of podcasts, for example, I'd be trying to find something yeah. to listen to. And I'd speak to people who didn't sound like me and they're in these really posh studios and they've got loads of money. And of course, people with loads of money can still have problems. That's a thing, you know, yeah. not, you know, but I didn't relate to that. I was like, these yeah, people aren't, exactly. my, aren't my people, you know? So yeah, to have, to have that voice. Mate, and and really I think that like, you know, they say just like the, they're not saying anything different to what like me or you might say. Everyone might be saying the same thing, but like you say, it's actually as many different voices saying the same thing as possible. So you find your version that you can relate to. That's what's important. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. And I certainly got that from your, from your book, mate, to bring it first, you know, all the way around and finish where we started. Um, yeah. I found it incredibly uh, relatable and I enjoyed it very much. Oh, thanks man. Uh, mate, thank you so much for your time today. I'm a little bit a little bit conscious that I've had you for a long time, but um, I really appreciate. No, I've really enjoyed talking coming to you, on. Um, I, I usually finish and say to people, "What's next?" And I always think that's a shit thing to ask someone who's just written a book. It's like, "What's next, mate?" And you're like, "Fuck, uh, I've only, <laughs> only just put my book out. Give me a chance." Uh, but, um, uh, you know, the podcasts are still going and all that stuff, aren't they, mate? And I'll put links. You can to get all that the reset. Uh, yeah, that that goes out. Every, you can subscribe to that at samdelaney.substack.com. Um, so that's ongoing. I've got another podcast called Top Flight Time Machine, in which we do talk a bit about mental health, but it's more more like a comedy and football thing. And um, yeah, there is a second book in the pipeline along a similar thing, but focusing more on work and at my attitude to work and how I've used that, uh, how that's affected my mental health and played a role in it over the years. So uh, who knows when that will come, but that's in the pipeline. So yeah, plenty yeah. happening. Oh, mate. Well, thank you. Thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it, Sam. It's lovely to chat. It's lovely to meet you, mate. Thanks for having me on. A big up to the proper mental podcast. A proper mental podcast. <laughs>